Welcome to Outdoor by 4 Magazine's audio edition of issue 37. For those of you unfamiliar with Outdoor by 4, the magazine began its journey as a fully independent, vehicle-based, adventure and outdoors lifestyle publication in 2013. Since that time, Outdoor by 4 has been the catalyst for expanding the reach of overland and vehicle-based adventure travel into the outdoors market, with a focus not only on the mode of travel, whether a 4x4, motorcycle, bicycle, or by foot, but also on the adventures themselves and the people who live them. In this issue, you'll hear a sampling of stories from the print edition, including The Dispatch by Outdoor by Four's editor-in-chief, East Meets West, an adventure hunting excursion, Overland New Brunswick, a perfect destination for vehicle-based adventure travelers, Arkansas, Natural Treasure, a guide to some of the best the natural state has to offer, and The Power to Surprise, does Kia's Telluride have the chops to be a competent overlander? There are also a variety of additional stories in this issue you can read by picking up a copy anywhere books are sold, or by subscribing or picking up a copy from the Outdoor by 4 website by visiting www.outdoorx4.com. We hope you enjoy this issue of Outdoor by 4 magazine. The Dispatch, by Frank Ledwell, Editor-in-Chief. Do you remember that one trip you took that led you cross-country to visit a few national parks, attempting to enjoy some good eats, fill up your gas tank, and rest in a hotel room after spending days in a rooftop tent, only to encounter a handful of experiences where you felt your safety, even your life, was in jeopardy? If you're like me, that is a scenario you most certainly cannot identify with. However, for black travelers prior to and during the Civil Rights era, this was not only a legitimate scenario, it was literally a matter of life or death every time a trip was to be had. Many of you have probably heard the story of a young Dr. Don Shirley who was a world-class pianist preparing to embark on a tour through the Deep South during the height of the Civil Rights era. Shirley was black and hired a gentleman named Tony Lip, an Italian-American bouncer, to escort him along various tour stops to be made on their journey. Along the way, the two men used a book created in 1936 and updated annually by Victor Hugo Green, a postal worker, entitled The Negro Motorist Green Book, whose purpose was to provide a safety net for black people traveling in certain areas of the country with recommendations on restaurants, where to fill up with fuel, and lodging that welcomed minorities. Green worked with fellow postal workers to gather as much information about spots that were friendly to minority groups and he solicited cash offerings to readers whose real-world experience could provide insight and valuable information by city and state within the book. He even included listings of individuals who were willing to offer their homes to travelers, as well as rooms to rent. You might be wondering why any of this was even necessary, or why this is worth discussing in the year 2020. The Negro Motorist Green Book was the byproduct of an environment in which widespread racism and Jim Crow laws encouraged societal segregation and left an entire segment of the American population cruelly discriminated against. There was an unspoken rule designed to maintain a certain status quo. Across the nation, there were thousands of communities known as sundown towns, where black people were not allowed after dark and where they could be killed for being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Route 66, known the world over as a part of Americana, just like Apple Pie and Harley Motorcycles, has a relatively unknown yet dubious history as a roadway of which countless black people were randomly killed if they had to stop due to a blown tire or running out of gas. 
It is even said a number of old vehicles spotted along the route belonged to those who had been shot and killed, and their vehicles left as relics in the sun. Unfortunately, and ironically, despite Victor Hugo Green having passed away in 1960, four years before the Civil Rights Act was passed, we read and hear instances far too regularly of black people today having similar experiences. My example in the opening of this editorial highlights how most of us have the advantage of not fearing for our lives when we leave our front door. We have never needed a green book to feel comfortable. We give little consideration to the fact our market segment lacks diversity or why it is a black population isn't engaged in traveling to remote areas like we are. Is it possible the experiences of the past have set a standard for which fellow Americans distrust the types of travel many of us enjoy based on the history of terror? My point is there is a reckoning we all must consider. We're all human. We all breathe the same air. We're all mortal. The fact that for 30 years a book like the Negro Motorist Green Book ever needed to be offered is tragic. Equally tragic is how, over 55 years since that book came to an end, fellow human beings are still living under that kind of fear. Since 1948, the name Warren has been synonymous with adventure, specializing in winches, hubs, and bumpers to meet truck, SUV, power sport, utility, and industrial demands. Warren is the leader in reliable recovery equipment and accessories, from the entry-level VR Evo line to heavy-duty and specialized application winches. Warren has the gear to get you out of any situation every time. Preparation is a necessity. Warn. Go prepared. East meets West. An adventure hunting excursion. Words and photos by Mo Martinick. Four years ago, I started going on hunting trips in the Rocky Mountains in search of adventure, experience, and a bull elk. A process that started as a dream became a reality once I committed to making it happen. For three years, I drove 2,000 miles across the country, succeeding in finding adventure and having experiences I will never forget. One thing was missing, however. I was struggling to capitalize on a bull elk with my bow. Hunting elk on public land with a bow and without a hunting guide yields success rates of less than 10%. In 2019, I was determined to change this and accomplish my ultimate goal. As a hunter, the kill is far from the only reason we go hunting, but I would be lying if I said that isn't the end goal. Going on adventure hunts has changed my life because it takes year-round preparation, discipline, and adapting to the inevitable curveballs. Spending days in the backcountry makes me appreciate the little amenities in life that we are lucky to have. This has spilled over into every other aspect of my life, family, business, work, and health. In September of 2019, after nine months of getting in the best physical condition, online scouting, research, and gear preparation, I headed west with two of my best friends. My 2015 Chevy Silverado 1500 was loaded down with my topper brim full with all the gear we would need for 17 days on the road and in the mountains. Over the past four years, 
I've learned a lot about organizing my gear to make the trip more efficient and less stressful. I'd always been pretty good about having my hunting gear dialed, but definitely slacked on the camp gear and my truck setup. The logistics of this hunt would be different than past trips. Instead of parking the truck at the trailhead and backpacking the entire trip, we would be setting up base camp at the truck. We needed a place to return to every night to cook dinner, filter water, discuss the day around a fire, go to sleep, and then get up and drive to wherever we were planning to hunt the next day. In addition, the camping location was going to be down a rough dirt road in the mountains and we had no idea of the road's actual condition. This made pulling a camper or trailer impossible, so we needed to fit everything in my truck, but also have everything we needed. First, I looked at sleeping options. I've stayed in the bed of my truck before, but this required pulling out all the gear and coolers each night and putting them back every morning when it was time to drive to the hunting location. After debating on using a regular tent or looking at other options, I selected a James Baroud Evasion rooftop tent. The comfortable mattress, extremely fast setup and takedown times, ability to be put away even covered in a layer of frost, and the insulation in cold temperatures were some of the reasons I went this route. The hard shell fiberglass design looks great and allowed me to store my pillow, sleeping bag, and extra blanket inside the tent while I drove. The other guys at camp were jealous of my sleeping arrangements. In addition, I ran a Slumberjack Roadhouse tarp off the back of the truck to create an area for us to hang out in inclement weather and cook on the tailgate out of the elements. By unclipping the four straps around my truck, I could lay the tarp down during the day while I was out hunting, putting a few logs on it to make sure it didn't blow away. After the initial setup, I could have it connected to my truck again within minutes at the end of a long day. As far as the truck bed goes, I installed a decked truck bed storage system. At first, I was concerned that I would lose too much bed space, but I was wrong. The drawers kept my fireside outdoor pop-up pit and grilling grates, Helinox chair, high lift jack and winch kit, slumberjack roadhouse tarp, deck D-boxes, with all my food, coffee, stove, fire starters, fuel canisters, battery pack and water filtration, and my Goal Zero 400 lantern. Inside of the four ammo cans, I kept my toe strap, bungee cords, ratchet straps, Woodsman's Pal multi-use survival tool, Army shovel, and Durabat DB200 jump starter battery pack. On top of the truck bed, we had three coolers of 85 quart size or larger, stuffed with our backpacks and clothes for dual purpose, three SKB bow cases, a camp table, archery target, and additional camp chairs. Lastly, we used a hitch carrier for the Yeti 160 cooler, a 5-gallon jerry can with gas, and a 5-gallon emergency water jug. This system worked great for the trip and allowed us to stay mobile. After driving almost 40 hours straight from Pennsylvania to Idaho after work on a Friday, we arrived at our camping location at 2.30 a.m. Having GPS mapping technology on my phone with apps like Onyx Hunt, I marked the camping location back at home, downloaded the mapping area for offline use, and was able to find it in the middle of the night. The hunt itself began after a day of acclimatization to the elevation and catching up on some much-needed rest. The field producer, filmmaker, Justin, and I headed up a narrow, rough 4x4-only road to reduce an already long hike in the dark. My paint gained some new pinstripes, and our bodies were rattled from driving over a cattle guard slightly too fast, but we made it. That's where the work began, 
and we had to leave the truck behind. We began the day with a 2,000-foot climb to the top of a mountain in the dark, hoping to arrive before the sun came up. With the sun rising over the mountains, cool air was rushing down the valleys with the thermals working their magic. Even after the difficult climb, with our lungs screaming, we couldn't help but smile at that point. Not long after the first light, a giant herd bull came over the knoll and walked just out of range, heading to bed. We moved to the other side of the high country meadow, waiting for the swirling winds to settle down. I set up my maven spotting scope and covered every square inch of the mountainside looking for signs of life at a distance. I watched a herd of bighorn sheep way up above the tree line and saw some other elk moving in and out of the timber over a mile away. I've come to love the process of glassing or looking through binoculars or spotting scope for periods of time. You get to see how everything interacts without any disturbance. Out of nowhere, a herd of elk came over the top of the mountain headed right towards our meadow, causing us to run into position. Out came a group of cow elk, followed by a beautiful bull. During September, the elk are in the peak of their breeding season called the rut. This bull elk had the women in his mind and followed them right past me at 60 yards. Drawing my bow, a million thoughts raced through my mind. Everything I had worked for over the last four years came down to this one moment. I executed a perfect shot, which caused the elk to expire in a matter of seconds. A clean, ethical kill is what we hunters strive for. The emotions I felt at that moment were unexplainable, and the fact that Justin got it all on camera made it even sweeter. Walking up to an animal of that size on the ground is something I had never experienced before. It's one thing to see them, but to see them up close like that, you really appreciate their sheer size and magnitude. Butchering the elk in the field left us carrying out the heavy load on our backs. I am incredibly thankful to have such great friends to be there with me to not only help carry the meat off the mountain, but to continue to make the experience last throughout the rest of the day and the trip. The bull elk yielded 200 pounds of lean meat to eat over the course of the next year. For the rest of the trip, I continued to help my friends hunt elk, enjoyed campfires at night, and just soaked in what has been the highlight trip of my hunting career. We recorded podcasts every night of the trip for the East Meets West Hunt podcast, in which I started to help others learn how to experience these types of adventures in their own lives. When I go on these trips, I try to separate myself from the fast-paced world we live in, but I've come to love filming and photographing these hunts, making the memories much easier to relive. We left the mountains with full coolers and memories that will last a lifetime. Overland New Brunswick by Matthew Godin From sleeping beside the highest tides in the world to driving on the ocean floor to an island, I found the underrated and uncrowded province of New Brunswick to be a perfect destination for vehicle-based adventure travelers. More passenger. Now straight. The mirror is going to fold in. That's fine. Keep going straight. Virgil from Northbound Expeditions was spotting me as we tried to save my rooftop tent from getting caught up in a tree leaning over the trail. Earlier, I had gotten stuck in the stickiest day as we were getting back on the trail from our beach campsite. 
My 2019 Jeep Cherokee Trailhawk was only five months old, but it was having an adventure of a lifetime. We were on the Cape Spencer Trail near St. John, a popular trail for modified Jeep Wranglers in the perfect testing ground for my new Jeep. When thinking of a place to explore overland, New Brunswick would probably not jump to the top of your list. Often seen by travelers only as a connecting province to Prince Edward Island or Nova Scotia, I say that people are missing something. If you're looking for somewhat remote, just pull a road map of New Brunswick and look at the central part. There are basically no roads other than logging roads, only vast wilderness waiting to be explored. Of course, if this sounds too isolated for you, you can always explore other parts of the province. New Brunswick is my home province, but in terms of exploration, I must say that I had unfinished business there. Equipped with Backroad Mapbooks' New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island map package, I planned a quick itinerary. However, I don't usually put much time into itinerary planning, as I prefer to remain flexible along the trip. The plan was to leave at the beginning of September, just after the peak tourist season, to explore the southern part of the province, and I had three weeks in front of me. Coming from the northwest, my first stop was at Mount Carlton Provincial Park. At 2,690 feet, Mount Carlton is the highest mountain in the Maritimes. I hiked to its summit the previous fall, so this time I decided to take it easy and just explore some trails within the park's limit. The park had also been the starting point of two canoe camping expeditions on the Nepisquit River when I was a teenager. Both trips had been failures though. During the first, I lost my canoe to the Narrows, and on the second, we eventually sank because the spring water level was too high and a friend almost drowned. But we had a great time, and that's what adventure is all about, right? Back to the present, I left the next day for Fundy National Park. New Brunswick's first national park is a popular destination, but at that time of year, I almost had it to myself. With over 100 kilometers, about 60 miles of hiking trails, I had plenty of choices. I chose to explore Matthew's Head Trail, and I'm not about to forget the view. The famous Hopewell rocks were also a short drive away. It was impressive to see the rock formation shaped by years of erosion created by the highest tides in the world. Some of them took a funny form and looked like some kind of bubblehead figures. It is a very touristy place though. I can only imagine what it's like during the peak tourist season. During my second day at the park, I found out the weather forecast was not looking good for the next couple of hours. Hurricane Dorian was on its way to the area. Nova Scotia would get hit the hardest, but southern New Brunswick was under a tropical storm alert. I decided to book a room at the Parkland Village Inn, located in the small village of Alma, just south of the park. I got a room with a view, well, the hurricane. The hotel was just by the village's wharf, but my jeep and I would be safe. As Dorian got closer, we lost power just before dinner, and the hotel's generator kicked in. I fell asleep later that night to my bed moving along with the hotel as it was flexing under the wind gusts. I was then awakened by a loud bang. The glass railing above my room had just shattered. Luckily, it was apparently the only damage. My jeep survived the night unscathed. I left in the morning to explore the southwest of the province as it wasn't hit as hard by Dorian. The plan was to get to Grand Manon Island and explore for a few days. A one and a half hour ferry ride got me there on a clear Monday afternoon. As we were getting closer, I could appreciate its rugged cliffs in the northeast and then the iconic Swallowtail Lighthouse. 
From an overlanding perspective, the only information I had about Grand Manon mentioned the hole-in-the-wall park and campground, now under North Head Campground and Park. It had campsites on the cliff, accessible to vehicles. But sadly, all campsites located on the cliff were closed in 2018. As the biggest of the Fundy's Isles, rugged Grand Manon is the place to go for some peace and quiet. But if you want to get to a place even more remote, a free 20-minute ferry from the island will get you to Whitehead Island, a smaller island with only about 180 residents. While exploring its southern part, I found a trail by the beach that took me to Long Point Lighthouse. While I could have set up camp at that location, the foghorn by the lighthouse was a deal breaker. Due to the weather forecast, I knew I'd get some better sleep at Anchorage Provincial Park, so I returned to Grand Manan. After spending four days on Grand Manan and exploring trails that were more suitable for ATVs, I left for the mainland, only to return on another island, or should I say a part-time island, Minister's Island, near St. Andrews. It's a popular destination where you can visit the summer estate of Sir William Van Horn, the president and driving force behind the Canadian Pacific Railway. The island is accessible by driving or walking over the ocean floor about one kilometer, about a little over a half mile, at low tide. At high tide, the bar that connects the island to the mainland is under about 14 feet of water. Exploring with Northbound Expeditions Before I left on this trip, I had been in touch with Northbound Expeditions, NBX. The owners, Virgil and Nick, know some of the best off-grid locations in New Brunswick. There was a particular trail where I wanted to explore and set up camp, Cape Spencer. However, as I was traveling solo, I knew that getting there on my own was just too risky. And as I found out, that trail was more challenging than I had expected. While the new generation Jeep Cherokee, KL, Trailhawk, has shown it can hold its own, mine was working near its limit on that trail. But Virgil had warned me before the trip. You will rub, he said. He had already guided someone with a Bonestock Cherokee Trailhawk down that trail and had apparently suffered some damage, mainly because it didn't have rock sliders. However, mine was lifted and equipped with slightly bigger and better all-terrain tires, skid plates, which were OEM, rock sliders, and I was okay with a couple of pinstripes. The trail was very narrow from the start as it was overgrown, and the vegetation was scratching my paint on both sides. I said goodbye to my Jeep's paint and I just kept driving. I bought this Jeep to use on the trails, so I knew this was inevitable. The trail was approximately 8 kilometers, uh, about 5 miles, and it took us about 3.5 hours to get to our campsite on the beach. Our original plan was to set up camp on the Cape, but after bumping into some local Jeep Club members, we were advised against it. It's just way too windy up there, guys, one said. But they mentioned a nearby beach which would provide shelter. That spot was unknown to Virgil and Nick, so we decided to check it out. Of course, I was teased for driving the new generation Cherokee on the trail. You're the one driving that car, one asked. Yes, that's my Jeep thing, and it's doing pretty well, actually, I replied. Really? Huh he said back with a surprised look. We chatted some more and then left in the direction of our campsite. It turned out to be one of the best campsites we had ever seen. It was rocky but could easily accommodate our three overland rigs. Leaving the next morning, we now had to go uphill. My guides were both driving JKs sitting on 37 inch mud tires, but my modest 30 and a half inch all-terrain tires quickly filled up with clay just as we got on the trail. My jeep eventually came to a stop as it ran out of traction and its belly got caught up. Thanks to my set of Max tracks, we managed to get the jeep out of its sticky situation. 
Nick had to leave early, but Virgil was able to take me to the cave. It's a popular location for off-grid camping for a reason, the scenery. But it is exposed. While there, I couldn't help but appreciate how these seashore features of southern New Brunswick differ from the north. The south is more rugged and rocky. I later thanked Virgil for guiding me on the trail and then left for my next destination, Martin Head. Martin Head is located about 10 kilometers, about 6 miles, west of Fundy National Park. It's a popular camping destination for the locals and it's situated on Crown Land, free camping. It's accessible through a network of secondary roads, snowmobile, and ATV trails. The last few kilometers are a bit rough, though, so I'd recommend a four-wheel drive vehicle. According to Virgil, I was likely to have the whole place to myself on that Sunday night. He was right. I got there just as it was getting dark, so I had to find a safe camping location. When you sleep beside the highest tides in the world, you want to get it right. I got there at low tide, and high tide was only scheduled for the middle of the night. I didn't want to get swept away by the sea while peacefully sleeping up there in my rooftop tent, and it was a full moon, so the water level would get even higher. Thus, I set up camp on a grassy area. It was exposed, so a bit windy, but at least it was a safe spot. The next day I found some better spots, but I was only there for one night. After spending a total of two and a half weeks on the road, I drove northeast to visit my dad and ship again for a few days. We gave my jeep a good wash, a well-deserved wax, and it was then ready for its next adventure. At least now I can say that I explored my own backyard. Can I say that I didn't leave any stones unturned though? Not really. But at least I won't feel too bad next year when I'll be the one driving through to finally visit Nova Scotia and Cape Breton Island. Are you looking for the perfect fitting, fully customizable pop-up truck camper for your next adventure? Then look no further than the selection from four-wheel campers. From classic slide-in, bed top, and flatbed configuration designs, four-wheel campers has the setup you need. With extensive available custom options and precision built in Woodland, California, four-wheel campers has been providing quality equipment for the outdoor community since 1972. For more information on the pop-up camper you've been looking for, then pop on over to fourwheelcampers.com. That's F-O-U-R, wheelcampers.com. Arkansas. Natural treasure. Words and photos by Susan Dragoo. But have you been to Arkansas? This is a question I find myself asking fairly often these days among folks who embrace outdoor experience of various kinds. Most often the answer is no, or perhaps they've driven through it on Interstate 40 and didn't notice anything remarkable, such as the usual scenery along an interstate highway, by the way. Well, you should go, is what I tell them, and it's what I am telling you, dear reader, although part of me would prefer to keep this natural treasure the well-kept secret it seems to be. I'm an Oklahoman with roots in Arkansas, and it's been an outdoor playground for my family all my life. There, I've explored on two wheels and four, hiked hundreds of miles through the mountains, canoed pristine rivers and stood in the spray of waterfalls, enjoyed charming CCC-built state parks, and, well, you should go see for yourself. Plus, it's uncrowded, so then again, maybe you shouldn't. But if you insist, here's a guide to some of the best the natural state has to offer. 
Endless Hiking Arkansas has two mountain ranges, both in the west-central part of the state. These mountains anchor the best recreational opportunities. In the northwest are the storied Ozarks, really a deeply dissected plateau with hollers cut by clear, fast-flowing streams. The less-known Wachita Range occupies the southwest, an odd east-west arrangement of peaks containing Mount Magazine, the state's highest point at 2,753 feet. Both lie within national forests, and each has its share of treasures, including its own long-distance hiking trail. The Wachita Trail, OT, stretches 223 miles across the spine of the Wachita Mountains from the west of the Oklahoma border to Little Rock, with Appalachian Trail-like shelters every 9 or 10 miles and plentiful access points, it's a popular through-hiking route, as is the Ozark Highlands Trail, OHT, its northern neighbor. The main body of the OHT stretches 164 miles from Lake Fort Smith State Park northeast to the Buffalo River, through the Boston Mountains Range, one of the Ozarks most rugged. It's still growing, with trail-building efforts ultimately intended to connect it with Missouri's Ozark Trail. Both the OT and OHT are challenging paths for day hiking or backpacking, with sections that are steep and rugged and sketchy but fun stream crossings. I've backpacked both of them in their entirety and think it might be time to go again. On the Ozark Highlands Trail, don't miss the sunset at White Rock Mountain and the mysterious gorge of Maranoni Scenic Area. On the Wachita Trail, the view from Flatside Pinnacle is a must-see. Spectacular hiking is not limited to these two trails, however. Beautiful Eagle Rock Loop in the Wachitas is one of the state's most rugged loop hikes. Arkansas's many natural areas and wilderness areas, such as Devil's Eyebrow Natural Area and Richland Creek Wilderness, offer unfettered exploration. Then there is Arkansas's vast system of state parks. Rugged and Rustic if you don't want to spend all your nights in a backpacking tent, Arkansas has plenty of state parks with lodging from luxurious to rustic and a dizzying array of hiking trails, making great base camps for wheeled excursions as well. My favorite of the Wachita Mountains area is the CCC's 1933 Petit Jean State Park, Arkansas's first. Its historic lodge and cabins of native stone and timber atop Petit Jean Mountain provide a marvelous base for exploring nearby rock formations and waterfalls. Don't miss Seven Hollows Trail, nothing short of glorious in the fall when foliage is at its peak. Up north in the Ozarks near Fayetteville, Devil's Den is another CCC park with classic cabins and great hiking. The Butterfield Trail is the park's signature hiking trail, named for the legendary 1858-1861 Stagecoach Road that ran through this part of the state as it connected St. Louis and San Francisco via the first transcontinental overland mail route. The state's high point is encompassed within Mount Magazine State Park, and the trail to its summit is accessed just steps from the park's high-end lodge and cabins. Nearby Mount Nebo State Park fully occupies the summit of its namesake peak with CCC cabins and hiking through historical sites and waterfalls around the mountain rim. And while we're talking about history, Arkansas protects several historical sites within its park system. One of those treasures is historic Washington State Park, which preserves the Museum Village of Washington in the state's southwest corner. This community was an important stop along the Southwest Trail, 
the primary passageway for travelers and migrants bound for Texas in the 1800s. James Bowie, Sam Houston, and Davy Crockett traveled through, and the first Bowie knife was forged in Washington by James Black. Glorious Overlanding Oh, did I mention overlanding of the wheeled variety? With two national forests, the western half of the state is dominated by a vast web of remote roads and trails, ranging from groomed to extremely primitive, accessible for motor vehicle use. Check the National Forest Motor Vehicle Use Maps, of course. And being that it's national forest land, you'll find easy access and plenty of free primitive camping as well as numerous organized campgrounds with facilities. Connect with the Natural State Overland group on Facebook or at naturalstateoverland.org for reliable information on routes and conditions and to connect with others for group rides. NSO also hosts two overlanding rallies each year at Bird's Adventure Center on the Mulberry River, the Bonfire Rendezvous in late April, and Rendezvous in the Ozarks in late October. These are prime times for getting off-road in the Ozarks, and the rallies provide excellent opportunities to connect with other overlanders. Along with the forest roads, county roads can get fairly primitive in Arkansas, and as a whole, the region is a hotspot for fun on two wheels. Yes, there's plenty of good road riding on some very twisty paved highways, with the Pig Trail, Highway 23 from Eureka Springs to Interstate 40, one of the highlights. But a dual sport motorcycle and a few days to ride and camp in the Ozarks and Wachitas make for an experience that's hard to beat. The Transamerica Trail traverses Arkansas as well if you're looking for an excellent unpaved route. Connect with the Adventure Riders of Arkansas, the ARA, on Facebook for more inside information. Go with the flow. Springing forth from all these wonderful mountains are clear streams that flow through rocky terrain, creating countless waterfalls which make for fascinating and picturesque destinations in and of themselves. One of my favorites is the Glory Hole, where the water has eroded a cavity through the top of a bluff, showering the surface below with a lighted liquid beam. Another beauty, hemmed in hollow, is at 209 feet, the tallest waterfall between the Rockies and the Appalachians, and can be reached on foot by a challenging trail or a short walk from the shore of the Buffalo National River. The Buffalo flows freely through the Ozarks for 135 miles and is one of the few remaining undammed rivers in the lower 48 states. Enjoy it in a canoe or kayak or walk alongside on the Buffalo River Hiking Trail, which also connects with the Ozark Highlands Trail. Then there's civilization. If you need a break, even momentarily, from this outdoor paradise, stop in at the popular mountain area of Eureka Springs to enjoy the cliff-hanging Victorian architecture and great food, or spend some time in the Rogers-Bentonville area, a surprisingly cosmopolitan burg with fine dining and a jewel of an art museum, Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art. There's more, so much more, to Arkansas, but you have the gist of it. Get out and experience it firsthand, or not, because frankly the pristine solitude is indeed much of the allure. Planning your Arkansas adventure. Best time to go. Any time of year can be pleasant in Arkansas, but beware, ticks, heat, humidity, and undergrowth make summertime more challenging. Even so, 
A short hike can find you alone or with friends, splashing in one of many natural swimming holes, places where overalls and old jeans were left on the shore before air conditioning drew folks indoors. Early spring and late fall are the perfect times to go, with winter months usually offering mild weather as well. Getting there. Arkansas is east of Oklahoma and west of Tennessee. Interstate 40 runs across it. With all the mapping resources out there, you'll have no trouble finding it. Hiker, author, and photographer Tim Ernst has written multiple books on hiking trails and waterfalls in Arkansas. Buy them at timernst.com. There's also plenty of other resources available online regarding Arkansas. A short trip to the internet should find all the answers you seek. My website contains numerous publications and blog posts about my adventures through Arkansas. Learn more by visiting susandragoo.com. The power to surprise. Does Kia's Telluride have the chops to be a competent overlander? By Frank Ludwell. With the LED headlights blazing a luminescent trail through the Chihuahuan Desert, the silhouettes of cacti and Sotol provided an eerie yet somehow peaceful reminder of desert life as we navigated to our campsite. Our journey was culminating after 10 hours of non-stop travel and Kia's all-wheel drive Telluride drove like a modern-day chariot fit for a king. It was a nice surprise as we began several days of travel along varied terrain not found in the concrete jungle from whence we came, and I was curious how our pleasant experience on pavement would translate while exploring some rugged, mountainous terrain. When the Kia Telluride made its debut in 2019, after being showcased as a concept vehicle in 2016, it was lauded for its exterior aesthetics and functional yet appealing interior. Upon delivery of our test vehicle, an SX all-wheel drive model, my initial reaction was much like that of my peers in the automotive press. The vehicle's sleek design is bold yet graceful, complemented by a 114-inch wheelbase whose side profile stance is elegant and reminiscent of luxury SUVs costing almost twice as much. Sound appealing? I thought so, while strategically loading the 46 cubic feet of cargo space behind the second row seats, after folding down the third row seating to accommodate our fully self-sufficient jaunt from the Houston area to West Texas. For reference, the 2020's Telluride SX V6 all-wheel drive starts at $43,490. My test vehicle, with options and delivery charge, topped out at $46,860. First things first, after 15 years of testing vehicles in nearly every condition imaginable, including a hurricane, I can say the Kia Telluride is an excellent bang for the buck vehicle if you're looking for a quote soft rotor platform. What's a soft rotor? A friend of mine helped coin the term when I described to him the attributes and limitations of the Telluride. In essence, this soft rotor performs quite well around town and does well in situations where a family is heading to a campground or looking for an outdoors adventure where the trailhead is easily accessible without any major obstacles. It's a vehicle that excels on pavement and is capable of soft, mild travel once you're off-road. This is how I would describe the Kia Telluride. Our journey to the West Texas desert was completely on smooth asphalt, 
Nary a challenge for the Telluride's 3.8 liter V6, made it to an 8-speed automatic transmission with active on-demand all-wheel drive. Three rows of seating provide a spacious cabin with seating for six, highlighted by captain's chairs in the second row with heated and ventilated seats, front and back, and supple Napa leather. My family and I commented throughout our journey at how comfortable the seats were, and the ride quality was exceptional with car-like drivability highlighted by independent front and rear suspension. A host of additional aesthetic and functional accoutrements complemented the experience, including a robust surround sound system from Harman Kardon, USB outlets throughout the interior, a tri-zone automatic climate control system, side window curtains on the rear doors to provide shade when the sun's rays become a nuisance, and a convenience package featuring a semi-autonomous driving experience with blind spot, rear cross traffic, forward collision, and highway assist systems that function flawlessly regardless of traffic situation. These systems function so flawlessly, I almost felt I could set the smart cruise control system, Kia's version of an adaptive cruise control, and let the car essentially drive itself. A reminder that autonomous technology has evolved like the Cambrian explosion with an exciting future on the horizon. The center differential lock and snow mode suggest the Kia Telluride is ready for any condition and, if you're on pavement, this is a safe assumption. However, as our journey transitioned from asphalt to scree with ruts, boulders, and other off-road obstacles, it soon became clear that Telluride indeed has its limitations. With only 8 inches of ground clearance and approach departure angles of 17 and 20.9 degrees respectively, the vehicle rarely struggled in settings that didn't require high clearance four-wheel drive. The approach to our campsite was a bit unnerving and, on several occasions, my wife had to spot the Telluride in the dark in order to keep us from getting stuck in ruts that any competent off-road vehicle could manage with ease. Additionally, the Telluride's independent front strut suspension and independent multi-link rear affirm my feeling the vehicle performs its best when the terrain is smooth and uninhibited. For off-road, and certainly overland purposes, the Kia Telluride just doesn't have the capacity to properly tackle varying terrains while also adequately protecting the front, center, and rear of the vehicle upon approach. It looks the part of an SUV, but drives like a car. And that's okay if, again, your travels are around town or to a local campground or outdoor setting, where getting there isn't a technical challenge. For the next two days, we amended our plans to drive along less demanding terrain, and it was while experiencing the vehicle in this manner Coupled with the vehicle's center differential lock, the Kia Telluride drove wonderfully. The 10-inch touchscreen display made it to Apple's CarPlay made for an enjoyable experience while we navigated the upper Chihuahuan Desert with Freddie Mercury belting out a library of classics while Roadrunners and Javelinas crossed our path. In short, the Kia Telluride is a soft-road vehicle destined for success within a market segment that demands a well-appointed vehicle loaded with interior comfort and convenience features that are optional in other SUVs and a ride quality built for the road more traveled. As a competent overlander, the Kia Telluride isn't it. That's not to say you can't do long journeys in the Telluride. We did so and enjoyed every minute of it. However, the Telluride doesn't have the chops to get you to remote backcountry settings without significant modification, and my assessment is, if that's your end goal, I'd consider other offerings that are tried and true and designed to truly guide you along the road less traveled. Here's what's coming up in issue 38 of Outdoor by 4 magazine. Making money while traveling. 
exploring the ancient cultures and trade routes of the Himalayas, a climbing adventure on Gray's and Torrey's peaks in Colorado, and the Slovakian Succubus, a full review of the all-new Land Rover Defender. Also, be sure to visit the Outdoor by 4 website at www.outdoorx4.com regularly for new tips, reviews, and stories, and join our e-newsletter to stay in the loop on the latest from Outdoor by 4. You can also follow Outdoor by 4 and the adventures of our staff and contributors on Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook at Outdoor by 4, and by using the hashtag OutdoorX4. Until our next issue, we wish each of you the happiest of adventures.